I figured we could just take a minute to shit on Stellantis for being assholes to the UAW. <laughs> they really are not taking any of this very seriously at all. Like, the, like the what the it was the chief negotiator is like in Mexico at his vacation resort mm-hmm. or something like that, and has not attended negotiations once. And, and is yet, constantly sending emails that are like, you have to get more concessions. You have to yeah. carve concessions out of the workers' very bodies. I yeah, want like, a femur from each assemblyman. <laughs> he put out like a memo from their office while in a Mexico at a resort, uh, like complaining about the UAW's demands as unreasonable. Yeah. <laughs> like, my, my brother in Christ, you are literally on an extended vacation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, that's it's it's really absurd like on his face and in fact everyone knows it and i don't think that he's come back yet i think that it was it was like mm-hmm. big news and i don't think he even planned on cutting his vacation short no this it's the same situation as like presidents who are constantly golfing or whatever it's like they don't have to fucking work and they're not going to pretend to work because that's odious to them as well yeah, and I, I mean, I'm sure some of this is just, you know, your pure standard ruling class hubris and just thinking that we're a big company, we can push this this union around, but it's just like, first off, bro, you work for the, like, shittiest of the big three. <laughs> like, half the people in the U.S. don't even know what Stellantis is. Like, they think it's still Chrysler, so you're not going to have any cachet with the public when you start doing more, like, shit that gets it out into the regular media and stuff like this is the easiest stuff in the world to get every normal person on the side of the union because oh, yeah. it's just as clear you show them here's sean fain like doing a shitload of work with the membership taking the, the the demands from the rank and file and being like this is what the workers need to actually make this a good job and you have these fucking jack offs at Stellantis not even showing up and firing off emails about responsibility while fucking sipping down cocktails. And then and then sending a contract offer in to Sean Fain and in this little 30-second video that the Valley Labor Report posted on Twitter, I'm sure it's also available other places, he's holding it up and he's like, they said it wouldn't be full of concessions. And you see in the side, it's just got like pink post-it notes sticking out. He's like, it's full of concessions. He's like, I want to stick it where it belongs, in the trash. And then he's like... <laughs> Like somebody's dad, like animatedly throws it in the trash, and I'm. It was so good, though. This this is the perfect guy. (laughs) Oh yeah, handling this. Well, a hundred percent. And the thing is, is is you know, because you know, we know how like now the big attack mode that the 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 bourgeois media has settled on to try and turn people against strikes is this will disrupt the economy. Well, it's gonna be hard to convince people that. You know, the bosses give a shit about whether the economy is disrupted or not when this is how they treat negotiations. Like, you're not going to be able to convince Joe Public that the union is being unreasonable when you're pulling shit like this. Well, and also, like, it feels a little bit thin to try and trot that out after COVID as well, when they've been trying to blame everything on, like, supply chain disruption. People don't want to work, so you don't get any products. And, like, we've we've all lived through all that at this point, and we're sitting here like, well, that was a fucking lie. We can see that you're all richer than before. The system worked great for you. So it's it's a very delicate time for them to be playing the card of it will disrupt 
disrupt the economy. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, as of what, today, it's a, it's a month out before mm-hmm. the, basically, it seems like the strike's probably going to happen based on all of these moves by Stellantis. At least it's Stellantis. Yeah, I haven't seen that much uh, out of the Ford and GM negotiations, so maybe those are going better. Maybe the bosses at those companies are being more reasonable and actually, you know, treating these negotiations seriously as they should be with a union with an $800 million strike fund. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't know. It's just, it... I get that, like, you know, these these big companies have gotten used to, you know, the post-2008 you know, recession years being able to leverage the government in order to, to pry concessions out of the UAW. But it's just like, did you not just see <laughs> the election that just happened? <laughs> and, like, everything, like, the workers are being very open. They're not, like hiding what they're asking for and mm. it's it's pretty reasonable stuff and yet they're just out the the companies are out here treating it like it's 2008 again and it's just like all right <laughs> you want a strike <laughs> they'll give I, you one the the gall of them to be like no we need more concessions like like they were like that in yeah. 2007 and 2000 you know, like during the the crisis well and i mean technically that was t- before the was that was like in the middle of the bailout right yeah, I mean, they're always saying that shit. But, but yeah, but now, Stellantis had a record two quarters, mm-hmm. and by record, what is it, $12 billion in in six months? Yeah, in, in I think in just profit. Yeah, like, it's it's absolutely, and, and I, I know the number that, that they, they're throwing out there, because it's wild, is what, like, $250 billion between the big three in the last four years? Like, yeah. It's, yeah, it, it's wild. Folks well, for want more, more on that, th- I think we did a shop floor discussion recently. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So, yeah, if you uh, if you want more details in the UAW uh, contract fights with the big three that are you know coming up, uh, definitely check out that by subscribing to our Patreon. But I guess that means we should go into the regular show. <laughs> yeah, speaking of details... Uh- show your number one labor podcast my name is john i'm dan and i'm lena and we're entirely listener supported so thank you so much if you support us on patreon it is the only way we receive support for the show and it really does go a long way if you're not in the discord already please hop in there it's a really great place where you can find the reading group that we host on tuesdays if you are a patron that doesn't have stickers yet message us on patreon and i will get them to you now that i live one block away from the post office and if you want to help us out a little bit more you can leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or wherever you think it will help yeah, reading group is Tuesday, and they're doing Secrets of a Successful Organizer, so mm. jump in there for that. Great book. Um, just want to start real quick. This isn't even like much of a story, just a real quick announcement be- that I thought was great, because the town of Hadley, Massachusetts, continues to be the center of union organizing <laughs> for, for new unions, apparently, here in, in New England, where in addition to previously launching the first standalone Barnes & Noble union, the first Trader Joe's union, uh, you know, they now just had 24 workers file for the first union at the craft store Michael's. 
with Hell UFCW yeah. 1459, which is incredibly cool. I don't have like a whole story behind it. Just wanted to shout out Hadley for being this, you know, really cool hub of organizing in a small town. Would love to have a craft store be union. That would be very cool. Hell yeah. yeah. Well, as long as we're talking about cool stuff, let's talk about the TCG Player Union, which has received an enormous shot in the arm uh, because the NLRB has rejected eBay's appeals. So last week we discussed how eBay refused to recognize the union win by workers at its wholly owned subsidiary marketplace, TCG Player. And taking a page from the Starbucks Littler Mendelssohn union busting playbook, the company has tried to pretend that the election never happened. But as expected, as we called out, because it's so obvious, This week, the NLRB reviewed and rejected eBay's appeal and once again confirmed the union's victory and certification of the CWA as the workers' organization, further cementing that in many cases, all Littler Mendelssohn can help you do is kick the can down the road. Um, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and sometimes, you know, that's exactly what they're hired for. Like, that, mm-hmm. it's so cynical because of this idea that they, there's, like, you know, some of the companies will just be like, I will wage an endless war of attrition with the idea that we will, wa- like, wear enough workers down, fi- illegally fire enough people that we can get a decertification vote. But thankfully, eBay seems to have taken its foot off the gas just a little bit since the NLRB ruling, at the very least taking a step that Starbucks has not taken of seeming to accept that the law exists. Yeah, I was really going to, I was almost going to do a joke. It's like, and the NLRB fined eBay $10,000 for every day that they failed to recognize the union. No, that did not happen. Or that would, was what would have happened if, you know, there were, even that wouldn't really bother some companies, but it would be a step in the right direction. But yeah, so, you know, of course, after this appeal, was declined by the NLRB. Workers immediately called for the company to bargain with the union. And actually, you know, surprisingly enough, eBay has, at least for the moment, uh, you know, said that they will recognize the union and begin bargaining. Now, of course, the, we'd still have to see what bargaining means because, as we've seen, you know, Starbucks claims to be bargaining in good faith. And of course, that's, you know, one of the biggest lies out there. <laughs> so we'll have to stay on this and see how eBay treats this. But they have at least for the moment said, all right, we lost our appeal. We'll recognize the union, which is unfortunately uh, in the realm of labor relations in the United States right now, something of a step forward. <laughs> yeah. Goodness. Well, uh, I think that while we're doing follow-ups, we need to talk about the Wobtech fight because that has been going on for nearly two, or I think over two months now. So nearly 1,500 UE workers who manufacture green locomotives at Wobtech and Erie PA have been on strike since June 22nd and are now approaching the end of their second month on the picket lines. The company has since escalated their anti-union tactics by calling out their tried and true allies the court system everybody just just, boo boo Boo. boo. (laughs) that's right yeah in the first week of august wabtech filed an injunction to limit the number of picketers who can be on the picket line at once which is you know as we know a very common tactic used by the bosses to defang the strikes as well and, and has been used for well over a century in fact uh in another one of our recent patron episodes on the general strike in toledo they really 
really tried to do that. Different story in that case, but you know, listen to the episode for that one. And 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 I mean, this tactic has also been used in many other cases. You know, like their war on the coal miners at in Warrior Met in Alabama, which. I mean, that's that's a story to go back and, and go over if you got the time. According to the complaint filed by Wobtech, as reported by GoEerie.com, the company claims picketing workers used slurs against scabs, damaged scab vehicles, blocked plate, plant gates, and called in bomb threats to the plant. Now... <laughs> that there, last one absolutely did not happen. Now, that <laughs> that's the funniest say, shit I ever heard in my life. I... Uh, yeah, to- totally un- uh, uh, incredible, as in not credible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like the they block the plant gates. Well, okay, I'll give you that one because yeah, that's sure. the the point of a picket. So yes, I imagine they did do that uh, as they should be allowed to do. <laughs> they called in a bomb threat. They were going to nuke the plant. They <laughs> they doused it in spaghetti sauce and eggs and toilet paper. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah, all well, equally believable. Yeah. <laughs> The company claimed that the injunction was needed because the strike is tying up police. Now, oh God, yeah. who who is asking the police to be there? Is it yeah. the company? The, so that that was the one that pissed me off. Like so, like for, I mean, the bomb threat because it's clearly a lie. But like the 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 strike is tying up police, and we need those police resources elsewhere. Okay. Send the police resources elsewhere. The union's not asking for the cops to be there. Well, and and also it sounds a little bit to me like Wobtech called the police and they were like, hey, we need you guys to come do the thing again. And the police were like, look, you're really stretching us thin, buddy. This isn't easy for us to come out and do. I don't have that many officers. And Wobtech turned around and they were like, you guys are stretching the police really thin. And they're upset about it. (laughs) Yeah, they, they don't even need to be there. I mean, honestly, they would be better if they weren't. So, so as the company demands this injunction, uh, it also, you know, they're demanding with it a wide range of violations of workers' rights, such as, you know, limiting the pickets to no more than six workers and restricting the right of workers to photograph scabs, even on public property. Despite the claims of concern over police resources, the company has demanded that the injunction be enforced by a constant police presence. Is, this is the other part of this. <laughs> I'm just like, come on. I'm I'm just at a little bit of a it's like, it, I you know John just said it best with his the way that he he phrased it. It's like you're taking up all of the resources, or the the the, the cops say you're taking the resources, and then the company then points to the workers, you know, as if it's their fault that the police are there. It's, it's ridiculous. I have to call the boys in blue. They're asking for a raise and better <laughs> conditions. <laughs> we can't just do that. It would be chaos. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's. Absurd, because it's it's basically you are you are one step away from presenting the union with a bill for basically the overtime that the cops have to use to harass the self same workers. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Like, we might have to censor that one. We're not allowed to lay the heaven. We've been co- we've been told we're not allowed to do that. <laughs> well, well, and I mean, especially with the recent you know the the Glacier Northwest ruling, that's just going to start happening. But um, I mean, well, they tried it in 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 warrior met but yeah i mean this whole thing is ridiculous and 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 so like 
the president of UE Local 506, one of the two UE locals at Wabtech that's on strike right now, Scott Slauson, responded to the company's injunction filing by saying, quote, any issues that have been brought to our attention have been addressed. The company can make whatever they want of it, but most of what is being claimed isn't happening, end quote, you know, which is a lot more believable than the idea that these workers who build locomotives are calling in a bomb threat to their own mm-hmm. factory. Well, yeah. and I love that he's just casually being like, most of what is being claimed isn't happening. Like, yeah, we blocked the gate. Right. We obviously well, yeah. did that. I mean, it's, it's a strike, of course. <laughs> uh, but yeah. And and so all of this, of course, in is happening in the context of the ongoing negotiations or oftentimes lack thereof between the company and the union. Uh, there, per the reporting from the uh, GoERI there, and from statements from the union, and um, there was a really good article in uh, in these times recently that that gave a good update about a month into the strike, which I would recommend folks check out. But you know, based on all of the reporting that I've seen, it seems like there's a lot of still a lot of distance between the two sides, and that Wabtech really hasn't budged that much on a few of the critical issues, like you know, UE's proposal to reduce the two tier wage system that exists at the plant, and the continued insistence of Wabtech on shifting more of the cost burden for healthcare onto the workers instead of being taken up by the company, which is consistently getting enormous amounts of money from the federal government. Um, and so Slauson has said, too, that despite the company's continued legal attacks on the strike and their use of scabs, that the workers are just as determined as ever to hold the line and to win their demands, saying, quote, the resolve of the members has been amazing, end quote. I've been following them on Facebook. It's true. They are out there and they are standing strong. Well, uh, another story that we need to follow up on, which we haven't talked about in a little bit, partially because it's not school year time, really, Mm -hmm. uh, is the grad students at the University of Michigan. They have faced one of the most aggressive union-busting campaigns in all of academia. For months, the school administration has refused to consider the demands of the workers for fair compensation and say in their workplace. Now... As we move through this lull in the, in the summer, the school has issued a new escalation. On Tuesday, August 9th, the university announced that any grad students who strike during the fall semester will be permanently replaced. The former contract with uh, the GEO Workers Union uh, had expired back in May, and they're being told they're not allowed to continue to strike at risk of being permanently replaced. Yeah, which, which like, first off, like, for, you know, permanent replacement shouldn't be allowed. And, and, and if folks aren't aware, the, the U.S. Uh, labor situation where you are allowed to have permanent replacements during an economic strike, not a ULP strike, um, that's actually not the norm <laughs> in a lot of the world. Like, for instance, in, in, in Canada, although this may be province by province, I'm not sure, but I believe in Canada, pro- permanent replacements during a strike are illegal. But regardless of all that, one of the things that confused me about this declaration, which first off is, I mean, is wild to hear a university administration say to graduate students who are also graduate student workers that if you strike because we're not paying you enough, we're going to permanently replace you. But the thing that was, I mean, that's just awful to, to, to hear, you know, from a, a school administration to its students, but also just like with who, 
Yeah, from where? Because like, don't they have to be students at your university? Well, so right. like, you you did this whole thing in front of the entire fucking student body and fucked all of these people over as pointedly as you could, and then you're going to turn around and be like, "Who wants that job?" <laughs> yeah. And then those and those workers are going to be part of Geo anyway, and they'll just be on strike right away. Well. Yeah, like I'm. What, what are you gonna do? Go hire traveling, roving freelance adjunct faculty to be scabs? Like I don't. Like I don't. I don't really see that working. Like they don't, they don't fucking exist. There's not yeah. some like roving bands of Ronin graduate students. <laughs> yeah, like I I know that there's you know people like to make a lot about like uh you know the recent tech firings, but it's like I don't think you're gonna be able to just. I don't think there's a reserve army of grad student labor out there for you to just go gra- like pull from. But yeah, I mean th- this whole thing is ridiculous and like they've also continued to try it although I don't really think very successfully to manipulate the way that the press reports about this because when they made this announcement they they couched it in this idea that well look we had to 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 move on this because the union is just being ridiculous they they are refusing to bargain with us they they just rejected our most recent offer they didn't even respond to it and just left out the fact that what they meant was they made a new offer to the union and gave them a ratification deadline of 48 hours which is a fake offer because you can't ratify a contract that you've never seen before in 48 hours. So it's a fake gesture meant to like discredit the union, except that anybody who like looks at it for five seconds or hears anything from the workers who are just like, well, how could we possibly vote on this in two days? Yeah, you hand us something, we're suddenly supposed to put together the process and disseminate all the information about the contract, get everyone's opinions, and have everybody make these decisions in 48 hours. I don't even know if you could distribute it to every member in 24. Yeah, like, I mean, the, for like the Teamsters process, I mean, Grant, obviously, vastly larger union, but just for comparison, they're doing it's like a three-and-a-half-week time frame to vote on a contract that's a lot more reasonable and even for a small union like like geo here i would think you would the absolute minimum you could possibly reasonably expect is a week turnaround and even that i think would be pushing it so like to say you have to respond in 48 hours like that's a fake that's like a poison pill type of offer it's like it's not you know it can't be accepted and so you just throw it out there to try and make the union look bad Except that I don't think it's that hard for people to see through that. And one of the reasons, you know, we really wanted to to bring people's attention back to this strike is I think that the workers at GEO have done a really remarkable job of communicating the importance of their demands, exactly what they're fighting for, you know, an actual living wage for grad student workers so they can actually, like, be able to do their work and pay their bills. And, and, and so this just continued escalation, much like the Tugsa workers at, at Temple University in, in Pennsylvania. You know, this this same, I think this is just going to backfire on them and make them look out of touch, ridiculous, like out of step with the workers and unnecessarily aggressive, especially because the one gesture they have made towards how they would enforce this is by basically telling the faculty that they have to act as foremen, policing grad students, ensuring that they're not striking and, and, and taking on extra work to, uh, to act as replacements. Uh, but again, I, I have no idea how they would expect the teachers to be able to do that considering just the huge amount of grad labor that really every graduate school relies on.
Yeah, and I don't remember if this was the case, but I'm pretty sure the faculty are at least partially in solidarity with the geo workers. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that that will work very well for them. Yeah. So this is ridiculous. Uh, schools really need to stop acting like this and just like like being so adversarial against their students uh, unless they want it to be even more obvious to everyone that schools are not some special non-business uh, and that, you know, if you're going to act like a real estate hedge fund, <laughs> then it may only makes sense for all your workers to treat you that way, too. Mm-hmm. So undoubtedly. So solidarity with the geo workers. Yeah. And uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about Google and their uh, relationship with the workers and oh. how they're trying to manipulate that into avoiding any sort of responsibility. It's always such uh, an issue when we have to start off a story and it's like the company has problematized their entire relationship to the workers. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I think this is in line with almost every time we talk about Google on this show. <laughs> I feel like, and I know that we've, we've got some folks in the Discord who have either been Google workers or worked with Google workers and have seen this firsthand where, you know, we talk a lot on the show about independent contractors and the misclassification of workers as such, but Google has long been, you know, a major player in that with a majority of their workforce, uh, you know, being misclassified as contractors. Um, and so now we've got a new story that's come out tr- of workers trying to fight back against that because Google has invoked this misclassification as a justification to fire workers for unionizing. Yeah, I mean, approximately 130 members uh, of the team of writers, graphic designers, and coordinators at Google Help, which improves Google search results and, you know, runs the chatbot, have been organizing with the Alphabet with Alphabet Workers United, which we've talked about in the past. Uh, but we're told in late July that most of them will be fired this month, as reported by Bloomberg. Google claims that this firing is legal because they are contract workers with uh, Accenture? Accenture, I think. Accenture? Accenture? But workers (laughs) have countered that for all intents and purposes, they are employees of Google, and therefore this is illegal retaliation. I mean, yeah, like the only way that it could be more clear is if Google owned Accenture outright. Right, like right. that's the only thing stopping this from being an absolutely cut and dry case, even under the fucked up ass legal situation we have in the U.S. Yeah, well, and you're pointing out it's it is a real problem all over the U.S. because this is a rampant problem where companies try to avoid actually having any responsibility or you know giving the workers any actual rights that are afforded to workers in general through this misclassification. I mean, this is very commonly used by Amazon as well. Yeah, and and this is, although it is particularly brazen, I feel here because it's literally the workers at Google Help, and you're saying they're not Google workers. <laughs> like I don't care that you hired them through this other company, Accenture. Like it's ridiculous. Because even you know we've talked earlier this year, the NLRB ruled that YouTube music workers who unionized unanimously are in fact joint employees of Google, which makes sense since Google owns YouTube, so Mm -hmm. of course they are. Uh, But again, Google following the same Starbucks, Littler, Mendelssohn strategy of simply choosing to believe the law does not exist or apply to them, and you know, maybe under capitalism it doesn't, um, 
Their spokesperson, Courtney Mancini, has said, quote, we'll continue to assert our position that we're not a joint employer, end quote. <laughs> So it's like, okay, well, but they've ruled that you are. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and continue to assert that you don't have to stop at red lights. But guess what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like, and, and, and it's, it's one of those things that it's just like, it's preposterous, but it is also very revealing about, mm-hmm. you know, how the law works for different people or organizations. Yeah, I mean, anyone, if you hire, even if you contract through a contracting company, that you are hiring them yeah, how yeah. Is there, there's literally how else do you describe well, it to to a certain extent i kind of understand the issue here because if there's too many rulings that say uh contract company employees are actually employees of the parent company all of those labor contracting companies are instantly going to vanish <laughs> which would be great it would be I would perfect love that. but <laughs> the ruling class of the united states both political and corporate is terrified of that we want to get less middlemen well because they're just like look we've got this great solution you know it used to be we actually had to go find people in the reserve army of labor but now we got all these little brokers that do that for us it's great please don't screw up our system yeah, and also like it the whole thing is really fucked up because when you think about it it's like they pay these firms to get the employees for them so they can pay the employees less. So they're not even mm-hmm. saving the whole difference in salary. Yep. They're fucking you over out of like 30, 50, 70% of your salary so they can save 10 fucking percent off the top. Mhm. And yeah, honestly, it, when they contract, it sometimes it costs them more to get these contract employees uh, because they pay the fees to the you know contracting company. And then on top of, I mean, this is actually mostly as far as I mean, sure, what you're talking about does happen as well. But what I think this is is literally just a move similar to like gig economies and other sorts of you know disruptive technologies to just avoid labor law. Well, and and to emphasize, like it's not just oh the company's name the the thing they worked on is named Google. Like what you, the workers themselves have talked about how integral they've been to the Google infrastructure. Like Laura Green, who's a uh, multimedia team leader, explained to Bloomberg reporters just how much control Google exerts over her job, saying, "Quote: Most of my work week, I'm talking to Googlers, working with Googlers." I've worked with them a lot more closely than I do Accenture managers. I have a Google email. I use their proprietary systems and equipment. And if I have a problem with my equipment, I call Google tech support, end quote. Wow. So many fucking parallels to uh, UPS contract mm-hmm. workers as well. Good gracious. Yeah. And and Google is a really egregious offender in this this type of employee mismanagement with more than half of their own workforce being contractors. And, and of course, typically as, as with any giant corporation, the Google help workers were notified of their terminations via video conference. And those being fired have been asked to train their replacements in India and the Philippines. And, uh, and Jail Muhammad, a writer at Google Help, told reporters, quote, it's obvious that this timing is incredibly suspicious, and that is why we are filing an unfair labor practice charge to hold Google and Accenture accountable for their behavior, end quote. Great quote. I understand that if you said anything stronger than suspicious, it might be like, you know, 
potentially technically libelous or whatever, but like it's a lot more than fucking suspicious. This is something we see literally every episode of this podcast. It's true. We really do. Although, I mean, as Centra says that they had no idea that there was organizing going on and the firings were not retaliatory because of that. Well, you know, they. We're in charge of everything and we're really good at running stuff, but also we have no idea what's going on and we're just little babies. <laughs> Be nice to us. <laughs> they're definitely our employees, but we have no idea what they're doing at any moment of any day. <laughs> like it's it, it it it's so absurd, but it's also like this is how so many people, like millions of people's lives are made worse. And they're lying because they're not allowed to surveil employees because that would be an additional ULP on top of this ULP of them firing workers for organizing. Right, exactly. And so, you know, but, you know, despite this brazen retaliation against these workers, and I believe as of the day of a recording, I, I, I think through some of the stuff I've seen in social media, that a lot of these firings have already happened. But, like, the workers who are still there, though, say that, this has only galvanized them to continue the fight to win their union regardless, that the remaining 40 staff members have not been intimidated by this and have just been like, look, this really just shows why we need it. And so, like, writer Talia Kirk said, quote, I'm confident that we have such strong support that we will win the union election no matter what, end quote. Hell yeah. And I just am waiting for, I bet there's like a a secret memo going out saying, hey, do not let any of this information accidentally leak like all of those other cases of companies leaking the fact that they knew all of this shit beforehand. Like, Oh, yeah. I, I mean, 100%. I, it's definitely going to happen, though. Just wait. Six months down the line, something's going to pop up. Yeah, well, because it's like, that's the thing. It's like, you know, you for, for all the talk that you hear from fucking reactionaries about how unions are in bed with organized crime... Like, what would you call the entire existence of labor relations experts like Littler Mendelssohn, then organized crime? That's their whole existence. Yeah, absolutely. Like, but anyways, on a more, uh, I guess, jovial note, perhaps, uh, we got to see some more flexing of worker muscle in L.A. this week, which has just been, this summer has been really kind of the center of the big union upsurge around the country from, of course, obviously the WGA and SAG after strikes, which have made all sorts of headlines, but also to the, I believe now nearly 15,000 striking unite here, hotel workers. Uh, then of course the teamsters, uh, and their fight for justice for the Amazon drivers in Palmdale, which I believe is like a part or suburb of LA. Uh, that city is so big. It is, it's strange to me when I look at the maps, <laughs> but you know, it's been really wild this summer to see so many tens to hundreds of thousands of workers in LA standing up and fighting for better wages, better conditions for themselves. And that struggle took another big step forward this past week on Tuesday, August 8th, when over 11,000 municipal workers organized with SEIU local 721 launched a one-day strike in protest of low wages amidst the cost-of-living crisis. And this strike was organized uh, back in May with a whopping 98% strike vote in favor, which, again, in a union with 11,000 workers, that's uh, that's quite a high level of unanimity. Yeah, Mm -hmm. 11,000 workers. This couldn't have happened in uh, quite a long time, I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, this is the first... Uh, you, you know, she sets them up, and <laughs> uh, the 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 first major citywide strike by municipal workers in over forty years. 
Uh, and one of the things that I think is really interesting about these sorts of strikes when it's like city or state workers is that you tend to see in ways that you don't always see with a lot of strikes in the U S a lot of really like broad, different jobs coming together on the picket line at once. You, cause you, you know, you've got people like lifeguards, but you've also got custodians. You've also got, you know, grounds crew folks. You've got maintenance engineers and technicians. You've got city planners. You've got all sorts of different workers across all sorts of different jobs coming out to stand united and demand that the city negotiate a fair new contract that addresses their concerns. Right. Well, and one of the really great things about that is it's a, uh, you know, it, it's not just good within any given government to see all of these different public sector workers come together, but it's also a good example of one of the great reasons for nationalizing more industries is because <laughs> yes. then you get cross-sector bargaining within major industries within the country, and then that forms, you know, uh, the vanguard for, like, you know, better wages and working conditions, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so in addition to, of course, just addressing the, the broader cost of living crisis concerns that we've seen in essentially every strike, considering the massive inflation, the obscene rise in rents all over the country and everything like that, especially in major cities, one of the big things that has been particularly inspired this one-day strike by these municipal workers is demanding that the city fill a huge number of vacant positions in the city. Because it, similar to the what we see in essentially every nursing strike in the U.S., you have so many city governments with for a variety of reasons, usually due to uh, a lot of bullshit austerity budgeting, um, you know, don't spend the money or take the effort to fill a lot of positions, either A, due to lack of recruitment, or more often B, because a not sufficient budget is made to actually make those jobs that people can actually accept working in, like that have a wage where people can actually live near where they work. We can't fill all these positions. We've got to pay, pay all this police overtime. <laughs> yeah, that's. I was going to say, it's like, oh, sometimes there's budgetary concerns. That's always what it is. It's literally always the police every single time. Um, and so, of course, this made one of the big demands by these workers that you actually need to fill these positions because leaving them open basically imposes a speed up on the workers because it's saying you have to do the job of two people or sometimes three people or more. And it just forces them to shoulder more and more work. And as, as one, you know, worker, Anna Altamirano, a, a custodian at LAX put it uh, to the LA times quote, it's more work for less money End quote. And, and they pointed out in, in there's a really good piece in the LA times that, that profiled the strike. And they pointed out that some city workers have been forced to consistently work 12-hour shifts, really, since the start of the pandemic, just due to all the vacancies. It's absolutely yeah. absurd. And, like, as we know, the pandemic isn't over, but these cities have really just taken that to heart in a way that isn't productive, in that they just won't hire anyone. Yeah, because you, you get a combination of forces with, like, a lot of these, like... Because, you, obviously, there's, a, there's an interesting difference in... It, more interesting for theorist nerds, <laughs> but like, but like, because, you know, a government is operating under somewhat different incentive structures than a capitalist business, even though, of course, said government is captured by the capitalist class, but it's a different set of motives. But because instead of like, we're looking at city profit margins or something, you're looking at the city budget as a percentage of who's going to get what. And as the police budget always grows bigger and bigger and bigger, 
it cannibalizes everything else because, of course, there's massive pressure from the ruling class and developers not to either A, uh, cut the police budget to a more reasonable level such as zero, uh, or to raise taxes on said uh, rich members of the uh, local municipal body. Uh, So you get trapped in this situation where the dictates from the people who actually run the ruling class in these major cities has left it so that there's no money to hire the workers. And so the workers are, are actually forced to fight to get reinforcements basically so that they're actually able to have just a normal shift on the job instead of having to do a, a double or a triple constantly. Right. And back to the, the topic about COVID and the pandemic is that, you know, they basically, when they downsize and cut a bunch of different staff during the early parts of the pandemic, uh, you know, they were like, oh, everything's closed. You know, we don't need these workers. But then they reopened all of these uh, positions and has not filled almost any of the vacant positions. This has placed an enormous strain on the remaining workers who now have to do jobs of two, three, or even more people. Local 721 President Green said, quote, sanitation alone has over 900 vacancies. Unfortunately, some of the people that work in City Hall are these out-of-touch administrators, and we've been sounding the alarm for years. So we're saying, come back to the table, end quote. And the union has also pointed to major upcoming events like the Olympics and World Cup in the next few years, which will put even more strain on city workers, highlighting the importance of addressing these issues now before they get even worse than they already are. Yeah, and I don't know a lot about the World Cup, but the Olympics is known for just utterly devastating the working people of whatever city it comes to. Yeah, like, uh, I mean, here in the West, it tends to be a, a lot of largely just enormous graft for, mm-hmm. for like, oh, your city coffers get emptied out to whoever the, the richest, like, construction company in the area is to build new stadiums or hotels or things like that. Uh, but then also, yeah, you get, you get all of these, like, temp workers who get brought in to do this stuff and just get treated like absolute dog shit. It's awful. Um, and so... But again, you have this this point here where really it's the politicians who are nominally in charge of the city who should have been looking at this like, oh, hey, how come we have like literally thousands of empty positions and we can't fill them? And the workers are like, we can tell you why. And they're like, damn, it is a mystery. We have no idea. No one can tell us why these are still vacant. <laughs> and it, And so it falls to the workers to do stuff like this, to go on a one-day strike and be like, Fucking listen to us, idiots. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard to do anything else when your city council members are walking around the council chambers going, who's even in charge of this wacky city? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and and much like a lot of the other strikes that we've talked about in major cities recently, the workers have talked about, you know, one of the other key things just being how expensive it is to live in L.A., like how, how rents have soared. And so that has in turn pushed so many of the city's workers because their wages have stagnated further and further and further out of the city. And so like uh, Joe Martinez an equipment maintenance worker at LAX told reporters for the LA times quote, we want to get respect from the city to go back to the bargaining table. Our biggest thing is cost of living end quote. Yeah. And we've heard that from every single strike that has been happening lately. It, It is a common concern of every single worker in LA union and non. 
Yeah, I mean, every yeah. story, the workers are like, uh, yeah, cost of living's really high and COVID got us interested in organizing. <laughs> and it's like, okay, <laughs> great. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, to that point, uh, you know, David Green, president of Local 721, told reporters, quote, the message we're sending is that our workers are just fed up. They've reached a breaking point, and we need these folks in the city to come back to the table for the good of the city, end quote. And so right off the heels, though, of this strike... Uh, San Jose, you know, another major city in California, is on on schedule to have their own giant municipal workers strike this week, actually starting the day this comes out, uh, Tuesday, August 15th, where they actually, the the workers there authorized a three-day strike at a 1% higher tick than the LA workers' 98% with a 99% strike authorization vote. Perhaps only the uh, the Ithaca manager showed up to vote no and ruin the unanimous vote. Oh, bring back the they, classic jokes. They literally had two ticks left to a unanimous vote. They were like, we'll get you by one. They, they literally, they prices right at them. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so San Jose workers are, stri- are planning to strike for very similar reasons. And they're organized in a couple of different unions with the largest being Ask Me Local 101 and IFPTE Local 21. That is the International Federation of Professional and Technical Employees. And echoing basically the same stuff that the workers in LA uh, have been fighting for with with their one-day strike and potential future strikes. Um, Basically calling out exactly the same thing, that the wages are too low to keep up with the cost of living and and demanding that the city fill many, many vacancies that they have. Uh, You know, Kyle Wong, a city transportation specialist, told reporters for the San Jose Spotlight, quote, San Jose residents deserve fully staffed services, but workers can't even afford to live in the city we serve. Our hope is that city council members and Mayor Mahan will finally listen to us and address the understaffing crisis impacting libraries, the airport, affordable housing, and more. But if they don't, we are ready to strike for our services, end quote. That's right. Well, our next story is not leaving L.A., actually. (laughs) We are we're reporting a lot on L.A. this this week. So thousands of hotel workers in L.A. have been on intermittent strikes, as we've reported before, uh, since the beginning of July. They're fighting for wages that actually allow them to live and work in the city, like we were just stating. And the solidarity shown between the various different striking unions all over the city uh, and the hotel workers, you know, from the Teamsters to the writers and actors, have been really inspiring to see. Unfortunately, a recent high-profile academic conference has revealed a, a disturbing lack of solidarity from one particular group, the American Political Science Association, Ugh. APSA. God damn it. I mean, would you hear that? And like, you, let's say you work near like the convention center or wherever they're coming. You just know your tips are going to be dog shit that week. Just utter <laughs> trash. You're basically going to make like a dollar a day in tips. Yeah, because like, this is the thing. Again, the key word there is the first one, mm-hmm. American. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> because when you're talking about the American establishment of political science, you are talking about an academic field which is conditioned by you know the forces that run the administration at all of these various universities to reproduce the political science of this country, mm-hmm. which is a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how many good political scientists do we even have in the United States? There's Adolph L. Reed Jr. Uh, Nate Holdren. 
and we are running out, folks. <laughs> uh, is 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 um is Phil a political from from the Death Panel? Um, is he? I don't scientist? know. <laughs> he is an academic, but I'm not sure what his particular field is. Mm. Okay, so there's a couple, but not many. <laughs> yeah, it's mostly an ocean of pure trash. <laughs> Yeah, well, ABSA is currently scheduled to hold their annual conference over the Labor Day weekend in L.A., with many of the events and lodgings at the JW Marriott Hotel. Uh, One major problem, however, is that the JW Marriott is one of the hotels which has refused to agree to the proposed new contract by Unite Here Local 11, which we have reported on previously. But as reported by Alex Press in Jacobin, many other organizations have agreed to cancel their bookings at the Struck Hotels in solidarity with the union. APSA, however, has openly refused to do so, uh, currently planning to just openly cross the picket line. Yeah, and some of the excuses that have been rolled out have been extremely groan worthy. Uh, like, they again, no, but they 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 understand political science, Dan. They, they yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you go to a high enough level, that's kind of true. It's like it's like po- if you understand, political like, science understander has logged on. Well, because no, no, because I mean, like it's like if you want to be a successful and prominent political scientist in America, that's going to mean doing a lot of anti-worker shit because Mm -hmm. prominent politicians in the United States are all either in the Democratic or Republican parties, which are about as anti-worker as they get. So, but... Let's talk about this. Yeah, let's talk about this litany of bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, so... Because, again, it's L.A. I'm sure that it would be expensive to cancel all the stuff they booked at this Marriott. However, thankfully, L.A., is the second largest city in America. And there's a lot of other hotels and conference centers that you could use. You could go to a shitload of places. You're not going to run out. It's Los Angeles. But they keep bringing up... This is like basically REI land acknowledgement podcast bullshit because they literally put out a statement saying that they, they are basically blaming marginalized members of their own association saying that canceling would not be in, quote, the interests of our membership, especially underrepresented scholars, scholars from the global south, and non-tenured scholars, end quote. You know what would be really great uh, to, to serve the interests of those members? Maybe you hold your conference in the global south so it's easier <laughs> for them to fucking attend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and also, like... The very first people, I mean, look, this is not a scientific or representative study. This is me looking at things on Twitter. But the very first people that I saw condemning APSA's decision to cross the picket line were underrepresented scholars, scholars from the global south and non-tenured scholars who were like, "What? I'm not crossing a picket line for this conference. What are you doing? Yeah. I and- hope that this is their least attended, uh, least attended conference in history. I mean, it's going to be an absolute fucking disaster (laughs) if they try to just go ahead with it anyway. Real fire fest hours. Yeah, and and, and tons of of, like members have already said, no, we're going to boycott this. We're Mm -hmm. not crossing the picket line. What the fuck are you doing? And and as Alex Press uh, pointed out in her really good piece in Jacobin, it's not as if APSA can't afford this. They are sitting on $50 million in cash. So... It, they could just eat the cost and be completely fine and either and move it to a different whole different city and you would still have plenty of money. 
Yeah. But it, it's again, it's 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 this continued rollout of this idea that like people like should just never have to, you know, maybe do a little teeny, teeny bit of sacrifice in order to show some solidarity. And, and, and it is, it's maddening because it's like, there are plenty of members of apps. I will say for all of my ragging on the institution in the United States, there are plenty of individual members who I've seen online who have absolutely condemned this, who will not be crossing the picket line and who absolutely recognize that their class interests lie with the striking hotel workers and not with the people who own the JW Marriott. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, this was really, I think summed up best by, uh, one of the members of APSA who, who, uh, was interviewed by Alex Press for her piece, uh, who's also, I believe, a Jacobin contributor and a Yale Poli Sci grad, uh, where grad students are also organized with Unite here. Uh, Alyssa Battistoni, who said, quote, hotel workers have done more to support me as an academic worker than APSA ever has. Boom. Oh, roasted, (laughs) just demolished. Oh, my God. And any organization I've ever been a part of, honestly, because uh, I've never, you know, belonged to a labor union <laughs> or anything. Uh, I, I I think to myself every day, like the the guy who sold me my jewel pods this morning is doing more to help me <laughs> than any of you motherfuckers. But yeah, so the lack of solidarity from the leadership of Abs- Absa terrible. But I have enjoyed seeing the you know good members come out and be like, "What the fuck are you doing? Mm-hmm. This is terrible." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, speaking of terrible, you know, That's and right. also kind of LA. It's Netflix. You know, we talked we <laughs> we had talked in that last story about some of the writers and actors on strike uh and, you know, the nationwide fight back against exploitation on major film and TV studios. And uh and in the face of that, we have seen bosses increasingly ramp up attempts to outsource their work to lower paid workers overseas. An article in the LA Times this week spoke with actors in South Korea who say that Netflix specifically has based its presence in the country on rock-bottom labor costs. Oh, what? No, an American company went somewhere specifically because it's much cheaper there and they can exploit people with impunity? I have never heard of this practice in my life. Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, well, I think, though, I think this is like one of those things where I feel like sometimes there's a misunderstanding when it's like, oh, Netflix is putting out all this content from South Korea. It's really great. They're highlighting, you know... a a culture that Americans are not familiar with. And it's like, that is good. That's not why they're doing Mm -hmm. it. (laughs) They're not doing it for the good reason. They're doing it for the bad reason. Right. And that reason is that actors in the United States are currently fighting for fair residuals to ensure that workers get some of the profit from the use of their likeness, which with AI and all kinds of other technologies is becoming an increasing concern. Meanwhile, South Korean actors on Netflix productions are strictly eligible for zero residuals. They get none. Big old goose egg on that one. And the Korean Broadcast Actors Union has tried repeatedly to negotiate with Netflix, but the company has completely stonewalled them, preferring to act as if the union doesn't even exist. When the company entered the Korean market, it made the same excuse that streaming services used in the U.S. to get weak protections for labor by playing on the idea that their business model was new and untested, even though it's literally just fucking videos on your TV screen. (laughs) Yeah. And now, a multi-million dollar giant, the company still refuses to negotiate a fair union contract with the actors that it makes huge profits from. And again, the new technology thing has always confused me with streaming, because it's like, (laughs) 
it's like somebody in a boardroom is like, I mix together YouTube and regular TV. <laughs> this is an enormous innovation. Like, what, what is happening? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. And so, like, while the company's presence in South Korea, because of the enormous capital that Netflix has access to, has allowed for lo- some larger scale South Korean productions... The benefits to that have mostly gone to Netflix shareholders, and what small amount that has trickled down to the workers has only gone to a few big stars. Uh, Song Changon, who is the president of the Actors Union, said, quote, The problem is that Netflix's big production budgets aren't evenly distributed. Most of this money goes to the star actors or big-name screenwriters. For the majority of supporting actors, wages have stagnated or effectively decreased. Oh, my God. That's got to sting so fucking much when you're working in an industry where, like, you know, how it's been portrayed in media is that, like, oh, actors get residuals. And then you're working in an industry where it's like, not only am I an actor who is essentially doing a nine-to-five in extreme precarity, but also my wages are going down. Right. And a big part of that is that the way that, you know, Netflix typically pays actors is on a per episode basis, which has been I, it seems like from reading this is this is coming from a, a, a another piece in the, New, the L.A. Times. A lot of good reporting in the L.A. Times this week. Um, so basically what I could tell is that like many productions, actors are paid on a per episode basis. The problem with that is that the wage scales that this was based on, and this is this is also somewhat similar to the transition to streaming as we've talked about with the, the writers and actor strikes in the US, there's been a shift from 16 to 20 episode seasons to 12, 10, even eight episode seasons. So you may they may be basically act, asking an actor to take up the same amount of their time but they're only paying them that, that same per episode rate. And for supporting actors on Netflix productions, that starts at just $300 an episode. So if you're in a 10-episode season and you're a supporting actor, you're getting a whopping $3,000. Yeah, and I mean, I can't even imagine how much time that takes to, to actually film that amount because uh, I'm not only have they you know, made the season shorter, but, you know, just making it so that, you know, oh, it's worth it to have nine episodes. These are hour and a half, you know, they're basically mini movies. Imagine getting paid $300 to be in a movie. Right. And and as uh, Song, the president of, of, of the Actors Union, points out, quote, actors are still expected to show up for however many shoots it takes to film one episode without enough additional compensation, end quote. And... Netflix has also taken huge liberties with the rights of Korean voice actors. Unlike U.S. voice actors whose union contract prevents the unauthorized reuse of voice recordings, many Korean voice actors are forced to sign away essentially all their rights forever in order to get any work on a Netflix production. Contracts are also, and this is just like racist, are are often provided only in English. It's like you're, it's a contract in South Korea. You can't get a contract can't be in fucking English. Uh, and and workers are often prevented from getting their own physical copy of the contract. They're just presented with it in person and said, sign this. Yeah, and then they and, can't even review it later to adjust or to, to view the terms. Right. Exactly. And so 
And these contracts typically, with Netflix, they typically require these Korean voice actors to sign away the rights to their voice recordings, allowing them to be used for any reason, including to train an AI voice bot to just replace them for free. Uh, crimes. I, I say it on <laughs> yeah. many episodes, but this is crimes. We're, we're witnessing yeah, no, crimes, I mean, it, folks. And this is, you know, exactly what the writers and actors in the United States are fighting for. And, you, and we see, you know, the parallels, because again, it's like these struggles by the workers are, are not, they're, they're not affected by borders. Like it's the same struggle in both places. And it's just that Netflix is using, you know, imperialism to, to super exploit these workers in Korea in addition to the exploitation that they're doing of workers in the United States. And so the now that Netflix has leaned even more heavily on the South Korean market during the strike, the actors union in Korea is ramping up pressure to close the gap between conditions for their workers and those of American workers, which is great. Um, they are working on a new pay scale to rectify the problems of the per-episode standard and are asking for the same policy on residuals that U.S. actors get, which is exactly, you know, the, the fight that we need to see. Like, this is a perfect moment for international solidarity but by workers in the U.S. with workers in South Korea. And it's, it's a perfect illustration of the ways in which U.S. workers can help support the struggles of workers in other countries, which will only then help the fight for better working conditions and wages here in the United States. That's right. Set the fucking standard. But also, I mean, let's not stop talking about movies and all of that sort of media production because we, and also, let's move to something just slightly better, you know, or a little, slight, little happier. Yeah, a little happier. That's right. So visual effects workers have become a bigger and bigger part of modern filmmaking. But as we've previously discussed on the show, many VFX workers have been shut out of the same union processes and protections that other production workers have won through organizing with IATSE. Uh, VFX workers across the country have been organizing, especially since the pandemic, and their efforts took a major step forward this week when the first group of VFX workers at Marvel, you may have heard of it, have (laughs) officially filed for a union election. On Monday, August 7th, 50 VFX workers at Marvel officially presented their petition signed by nearly every member of their team asking for a union election to be held as soon as August 21st, as reported by Vulture. Oh my god, it would be so great if VFX became like a, a industry-wide unionized industry because like the reliance on excessive visual effects for so long has completely ruined movies but if you had practical Mm -hmm. effects and visual effects in balance Mm -hmm. movies would look so good (laughs) well yeah i mean exactly and it's really due to that lack of union protection that studios have been able to heap so much abuse Onto VFX workers, like things like unsustainable hours, constant overwork, basically crunch being, you know, the the default mode in the VFX industry, it, it all coming with a lack of benefits or even basic overtime protections in many places, and and with zero of the workplace protections that have make that that make their work some of the most exploitative in the film and TV industry, and all of that has can of course only contribute to 
and, and I, I say this not to disrespect the workers at Marvel at all, but perhaps the decline in some of the quality of at least the art direction choices made by that studio in the uh, unending number of Cape movies it puts out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, we have a a quote from IATSE VFX organizer Mark Patch, who said in a statement, quote, For almost half a century, workers in the visual effects industry have been denied the same protections and benefits their co-workers and crewmates have relied upon since the beginning of the Hollywood film industry. This is a historic first step for VFX workers coming together with a collective voice demanding respect for what we do, end quote. And actually, based on what he said in that quote, it kind of sounds like practical effects workers also aren't represented i'm not really 100 percent sure what the situation is there but have digital effects haven't existed for 50 years so <laughs> <laughs> well yeah I, maybe I mean, they have no i mean, I mean back, it's, the Star tw- Wars it's 2040 are, yeah and- i guess bbc was doing like primitive uh digital effects in doctor who episodes in the early 70s but yeah which is which is now 50 years ago is <laughs> it, damn it <laughs> isn't the original star war movie like in it's like 46 years ago um, but anyways, <laughs> as, as, as we grapple with the uh, forward motion of time, <laughs> I, I believe that uh, practical effects workers are unionized. Are I uh, as- Okay. Yeah, I watched a documentary about Phil Tippett, uh, one of the the all time greats of like stop motion, uh, and I'm pretty sure I saw some Ayatsi uh, union bug okay, stuff in there. Right on. Uh, I hope I did anyway. I hope I didn't just invent that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I mean this is 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 sick, and the fact that you know these 52 workers at Marvel are vitally direct Marvel employees, because of course that's been one of the things that has been a challenge because so much VFX work is, is farmed out to small studios. And then you have the classic move by so many of the big studios to say, Oh, the studio is unionizing. I will now cancel my contract because U S labor law allows me to do that, which is very fucked up. (laughs) And so Thankfully, in this case, because these are workers are direct reports, they can't do that. And because we already know that they have essentially unanimous support, there really isn't a whole lot Marvel can really do to get out of these workers winning their election. <laughs> and that's good because as, uh, as uh, you know, Vulture reporter Chris Lee wrote in his piece on this, quote, Marvel is regarded in VFX circles as the industry's biggest bully with the capacity to flood effects houses with more work than they know what to do with or ruin careers and standings of those who do not live up to Marvel's sky-high expectations, end quote. And so, because these workers are direct reports and they can't just have their contracts terminated, and because they manage to organize near-unanimous support, like, that gives VFX such a huge beachhead here. Like, it's, it's, it's a great breakthrough, really, for the industry. And, and, and that... It's at, you know, the, the, arguably the biggest studio in the country right now. It, it shows all the workers at the smaller studios that, you know, if they can do this at Marvel, you know, we can do that at our studio too. And the more of us, you know, if the more VFX workers that unionize, the harder it'll be for studios to get out of it and the easier it will be for the rest of them to organize. And Mm. so you could potentially see from this the starts of an organizing wave in the VXVX industry, which would just be fantastic and only lead to, you know, a lot better media for all of us to enjoy. Absolutely. More union waves, just as many as we can get, uh, is exactly what we're looking for. Now, 
In our next story, we want to talk about the National Institute of Health fellows who are joining the UAW, a union that we are very excited to report on a bunch recently. So one of the major transformations we are seeing as part of the current union upsurge that you know has differed from previous waves has been the push for workers in academia from grad researchers to postdoctoral workers to adjunct professors and some of them are all three at the same time to see their position as workers rather than just individuals. This change in consciousness has come in the face of the sharp deterioration in working conditions in academia as college administrators have turned to increasingly exploitative measures to show higher profits in academia. Uh, Recently, we got... No, but they do! They do, Uh, because so many of these schools are basically, like I was alluding to earlier, they are just real estate trusts that happen to operate a school, and they have shareholders. (laughs) Yeah. So, Well, as I had uh, alluded to before, recently we've got another major filing in academia, which could make waves due to its overlap in conditions for workers in the federal government. As reported by Peter Lucas for The Nation, over 5,000 fellows at the National Institutes of Health, one of the largest research agencies in the government, they filed for union recognition as Fellows United, affiliated with the UAW on June 1st. Fellows make up about a quarter of the staff of the National Institute of Health, uh, largely young workers, postdoctorals, and those in their early parts of their career, but they perform, as you know, we've talked about many of these academic workers having, a huge amount of the critical labor, and in this case, research, that the agency puts out. Fellows told the nation that they have been driven to unionize by low pay and a culture of overwork and harassment from their bosses, many of whom will threaten to destroy their careers if they ever stick up for themselves. Yeah. Uh, Some callbacks to our great interview with uh, a friend of the show, Prez, when we just discussed the general awful working conditions facing folks in academia in this country. And yeah, and in that piece in the nation, which is is, is really good, um, there there was a really good quote from one of the fellows, uh, Emilia Ventriglia, who's a fellow at the National Institute for Drug Abuse, who told Lucas, "quote There's this idea that because we are trainees, we deserve low wages, but that isn't livable for a lot of us. Some fellows are below the poverty line." We don't get benefits, inadequate time off for parental leave. We are raising our voices and being told it's whining, but we're essential and need to be treated as such. Who is doing the research? It's always the trainees, the workers. Supervisors will instruct you, guide you, give you inspiration, but at the end of the day, you're producing the work. A lot of times, this has been used as an excuse to give us less than livable wages, but at the end of the day, it's work like anywhere else, end quote. I just it's still hard for me to fathom that someone deserves to not be able to afford to live to be driven into poverty and into massive amounts of debt well well and this idea that like you you we're paying you with exposure and you work at the national institutes of health what is the exposure exposure to covid like <laughs> zing <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just it's no cuz that's what it always is with with any of these places like whether whether it's a, a 
whether it's the fucking bullshit student athlete lie in in the NCAA that you're you know yeah it doesn't matter that we don't actually give you know the student athletes a real education or a free ride or all the things that they should get or you know allow them to profit from their likeness because they're a trainee and it's the same thing with with graduate student workers and now you just you hear this shit with like adjunct faculty it's this creep it's like it's that it's the same exact thing as when we hear of about like workers at fast food places it's like oh that's a transitional job that's a job for for college for like high school students it's like no it's a job well even then even then like why does that mean that they should not have what they need to survive no i know you're absolutely right no and and it's an irrelevant red herring but even if you were to accept that premise it's just not true And, and and but to see that exact same logic deployed at the national institute of health I just feel like is especially galling, and and unfortunately, at, f- at least at first, and thankfully, this uh, the story uh, did change a little bit between when the article was in the Nation was written uh, and, and when we're we're discussing it today. But initially, the NIH uh, decided to respond very aggressively against this unionization effort uh, by claiming that fellows are not workers, but because they are trainees, that they were ineligible to unionize. Oh, wow. Just Uh, another callback to your NCAA comparison. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's all bullshit. And, and it's, but it's, it's also in a, you know, slightly different labor environment because these workers are in addition to being academic workers, they're employees of the federal government. And they are employees, not fucking trainees. Trainees are still employees. Um, and federal government workers' labor rights are governed under a different system. They are covered under the Federal Labor Relations Authority due to the 1978 Civil Service Reform Act. Workers are severely limited in what they can collectively bargain over. And they are specifically banned from striking, slowdowns, and bargaining over salaries. But they can fight for better workplace protections as these workers fully intend to do. And by being organized, they can act as a more effective lobbying group, which is the way that they can try and get better salaries, even though they can't technically strike over them. And so in an attempt to try and basically undercut the union drive, the agency announced an increase to fellows stipends shortly after they learned of it. But the inconsistent and confusing ways the various departments and agencies within the NIH have announced that they will roll those stipends out has really only served to underline exactly why the union was important in the first place. (laughs) Because again, a voluntary move like this can also be rescinded and it can just be a lie in the first place. Whereas if it's in a union contract, it's a lot harder for them to get out of. But thankfully though, outcry from the workers and perhaps some pressure from this you know reporting does seem to have pressured the government into backing down at least a little bit on their attacks on the union on wednesday august 9th the union announced that the nih had dropped their false assertion that fellows are not employees and thus not entitled to unionize the workers will still face many challenges due to those draconian restrictions on what federal employees can even bargain for but now that you know at least their employer is acknowledging that they're workers and they have the right to unionize in the first place that at least puts them in a better position to be able to consolidate their organizing and and start that fight for better conditions as best that they can yeah and all power and solidarity to them and i guess let's stay talking about federal employees because with this wave of new workers organizing 
we're not seeing that happen in just, you know, retail and service sectors, but as we were just saying, the government. A couple of weeks ago, on July 24th, workers for the Department of Interior at Yellowstone National Park voted over 80% in favor of unionizing with the National Federation of Federal Employees, or NEFI. One of my, I like this, that one, because it just makes me think like there's this really like nice, big, cuddly, like monster almost. But like, if you were to go against it, it would, you don't want to do that. Oh, so like so, a combination between like the host of a children's program and the real actual Loch Ness monster. Like like I was thinking like like the like a Yeti and also like the Sasquatch, but like also like really big, like, like a, a giant. So like a but also crossed with that like with Smokey the Bear. Yeah, yeah there we go. <laughs> we did it, folks. So, but, but, and, and I guess made manifest in the form of like one of those mascots that like the Japanese unions have, like, like Union, the, the yeah. Union Onion. Oh, yeah. they got to do like, that. I'm going to send that in. Yeah. I love Union <laughs> Onion. And uh, Hello Weed, that's my other favorite one. <laughs> well, uh, Nephi is associated or is affiliated with the International Association of Machinists. The new bargaining unit includes park rangers, educators, firefighters, researchers, and other staff at the park, both in, uh, including full-time and seasonal staff members. That seasonal staff members, I think, is a really big deal because mm-hmm. so often seasonal staff are thrown under the bus. Uh, my only question question there is how are the park rangers included are they not the bosses it seems a little weird to me anyway workers began organizing at the height of the pandemic three years ago gathering over a hundred signatures from staff members spread out across the park system nephi is reviving an old local from nearly a century ago federal union 465 created during the early years of the new deal to represent the yellowstone workers Uh, Nephi also represents uh, workers at the Bureau of Land Management at several other parks and national forests as well. The workers issued a statement following their victory explaining what they've been fighting for and their plans for what they're going to do in the future, saying, quote, Working to protect and preserve Yellowstone for the enjoyment of the people is a much more difficult and precarious career than people realize. Due to low pay, unmanageable workloads, high rent, a stifling hierarchy, and many other issues, the workforce here is struggling. The resulting high turnover negatively affects the park and the public's experience of it. We also want to find tangible ways to build a more inclusive, diverse workplace with more transparency and opportunity for advancement. Yellowstone National Park is one of our nation's crown jewel parks and a place where all Americans can be proud of. National park workers should be valued as highly as the places we love and work to protect. And we believe that union representation will help ensure that we are treated with the dignity and respect we deserve, end quote. And I mean... It's uh, it's a very nice sentiment. I do think that there is a little bit of question. It is a place we can all be proud of as um, as Americans because there's a little bit of a history there that uh, you know, probably worth going yeah. into at some point. Yeah, but it's better that these workers be unionized than not. It's yeah. true, definitely. No, no, no. I just th- that one line is really was I I was 
you know. I mean, it's it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll let it. We'll let it I appreciate the, the, everything in the quote and and all of the intended messages. It is a bit funny to be like national park workers should be valued as highly as the places we love and work to protect because America doesn't actually take very good care of its national parks. But no. <laughs> I bet if you were in a union, y'all would take care of that. So it's kind of a moot point anyway. <laughs> Yeah, sorry for all the caveats. Uh, I mean, this is supposed to be a really positive story, and it really is. Uh, I mean, getting all of these workers together. Uh, with the park's funding provided by the federal government, the union process inevitably becomes wedded to the lobbying process as workers press representatives in Congress to pass budget increases to cover their needs, of uh, cover the needs of the workers. A recent survey of federal employees showed national park employees near the bottom Per reporting by KUNC Colorado, workers told KUNC that other parks have already reached out to them about how they unionized, so hopefully Yellowstone will just be the first of many new bargaining units as workers stand up and fight back all over the U.S. That's kind of a tricky situation to be in, isn't it? Where it's like, okay, you know, not only is the federal government my boss, but also I have to go to Washington and spend lobbying money <laughs> to get the things that I need. Like, what other workers have to have to Mister Smith it all the way to the national capital? <laughs> like, what the? I fuck? would also hope that they uh, work to get a better representation of the actual history of the formulation of these parks. You know. Well, the 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 funny thing is, it's like it's actually it's kind of like it's a it's a weird perversion of like how you would want the system to work because like on the one hand in an ideal system, you want the workers to be part of the state making process of, of determining all that. But that's not really how our system works. Well, they're it's, not it's, it's part more that of the state. It's making the workers beg for their jobs. Exactly. Well, and lobbying is really fucked up because it makes them compete in a marketplace mm-hmm. of legislative ideas. I'm wildly air quoting right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like so fucking disgraceful because like these unions can pour all the fucking resources. They could pour 100% of their resources into lobbying the federal government and DuPont could still show up and drop like a, um, an amount of money that doesn't even matter to them and blow them out of the water yeah which is why the next step after unionization is uh meme review is reed lennon yeah (laughs) oh right reed lennon i was gonna say uh ban (laughs) lobbying but (laughs) i like yours too (laughs) but you are right lena it is time for the meme review finally Well, our, our first meme is a tweet from UAWD Reform, uh, Unite All Workers for Democracy is their screen name, and it is just a, a, a meme of three people all holding a board as they walk over a gap, and they are labeled temps, permanent, and retirees, and in each panel, you see a different one of them being suspended over the gap, carried by the other two groups of people. And then at the bottom, they all safely make it across because guess what? If temps, permanent employees, and retirees all look out for each other, uh, you actually do all get to see (laughs) benefits and and results. Well, and the caption really highlights that with, if we unite, nobody falls. Nobody falls, falls. right. I did skip the caption. (laughs) And it's like, these are like the simplest type of like memes out there, but I also really love them because like... Sometimes it's important to just like reiterate those really simple messages because 
all the time doing all these UAW negotiations, all of the, the big three are constantly throwing bits out there to try and split the workers against each other, the same way UPS tried to do against, against the Teamsters, which, of course, didn't work. And in the same way, you know, I think that we've seen the UAW building, you know, unprecedented, you know, unity here with the new reform leadership that uh, – I think this messaging, you know, is exactly what's important right before a strike. And it really seems like, at least from what we've seen so far, that this is the general sense among workers right now, that it's like it's it's that the real important thing is for all three groups to unite and take on the big three. Yeah. Well, and also I want to point something else out. I think that, well, especially the more like reform based movements, but like I've seen throughout the time of us doing the show, we've done the meme review, I think maybe since the first first or maybe the fourth episode or something like that uh and unions have really upped their meme game it's tr- it's, <laughs> it's true. true and there are still some unions that just put out like uh impact font and then with their logo on the background and you know whatever i'm not gonna call any out but like uh i i just am really glad that uh that there are a lot better memes coming out these days <laughs> from these unions yeah. So our next one that I just threw in here, just because I I know this joke is probably at this point because of the speed of the internet is now old. No. But I no I, not I yet. still did. I, I've seen take. I've take seen quite plenty. a bit of joy from the uh, the successful battle of Montgomery, Alabama, <laughs> and the defeat of the pontoon boat racists. Uh, <laughs> if, if I, I have to imagine most people know what I'm talking about, but if you don't, there was a video from Montgomery, Alabama that came out last week where a bunch of racist assholes who owned a pontoon boat, uh, like a bunch of just probably largely drunk white dickheads, like uh, ganged up on this black security guard. And then like, every other black person in the area shows up to defend him and kick their ass. And and so I'm giving all of this as context because the meme is from IRL loading screens and it's simulating like a, I don't know if it's Skyrim or Oblivion. It's one of those two, but it's an Elder Scrolls style of of loading screen, <laughs> and it's and it's a picture from that fight of one of the combatants whacking one of the the drunk racists in the head with a, with a steel chair, and then it's just captioned. Sometimes it's better to avoid a fight. You know, you can't win. <laughs> Hell yeah! I I did also see. Um... Uh, a photo of some police officers trying to hold folding chairs and do the meme. And somebody oh, had yeah. tweeted it and been like, it's over everybody. <laughs> Pack it up. It's dead <laughs> yeah. now. And cause it reminds me of that life of a meme comic where the guy's wearing the pineapple on his head and then all the brands oh, yeah. show up and do it. You could just as easily replace brand with cop and it works exactly yeah. the same. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, I think that, I mean, I've been, I, I have a lot of different types of people in my feed and I, I think that we're still seeing a little bit more memeing of this. I don't think it's dead yet. Uh, fuck the police. They can't take that. Well, no. Also, people who think <laughs> memes are dead after three days literally don't follow anybody except hyper-advanced shit posters on Twitter. Literally, <laughs> true. open your Facebook feed and take a good look at all the memes from two <laughs> weeks ago that you think are old because they are thriving. <laughs> Yeah, and then our next one is, I guess, uh, a staple of the meme review. We've got a cats with hard hats meme where uh, there is a a dish soap container with the little like different types of hazard warnings circled uh it, yeah, and the, that's the, the the hazardous material diamond that you'll right. see on like any cleaning product <laughs> yeah and the cat 
uh, is a black cat with his tongue sticking out and its little hard hat, and it says, "This is this is the flavor diamond." It shows you where the yummy treat is on on a flavor chart. <laughs> I love that because you look at it and uh, the dish soap has flammability hazard highlighted, and you're like, "Hell yes, umami." <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And then uh, our next one is a, a callback to uh, the, the well, I guess the pending uh, UPS t- TA. Yeah. So the next one I just is, is great. Very, very simple. And it's just my UPS driver asking for my signature. And then it's the UPS guy. But, but he's got like about 100 gold chains and a bunch of giant necklaces and like a Probably an 80s Rolex. He's got the Mr. <laughs> T fit going on, basically. Yes, it is. Yes, and it absolutely is the Mr. T fit, <laughs> but with the UPS hat on. Look, I think any person who delivers packages or delivers anything for a living should be able to afford a Mr. T fit if they want one. I know it doesn't work on everybody, but this guy's pulling it <laughs> off, so try it out. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, well, it, I just love this in the aftermath of like with the TA coming out, there have been all of these like recent articles or like people posting online that are just like indignant that like UPS drivers would make a decent wage. And I'm, I'm just like, have you seen the amount of work that job takes? Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also you re- want to do that much work. It's really <laughs> funny for people to be like, I don't even make that much. And I'm a general manager. And it's like, well, good. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're a worker and not a manager, yeah. Well, you know, then other people bitch about it too. The They're like, "Look, for. I'm a I'm a high level <laughs> research scientist, and I don't even make that much." And it's like, well, maybe that's highlighting a bigger issue than the UPS guy has too many chains on or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it. But it, I mean, ultimately, I think kind of to to what you're saying though. That, and I do think that there has been some movement on this class wide amongst the working class, especially among younger folks. But we gotta exercise the 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 horrific demon of discourse that is the being mad about other people getting a raise. It's like, no, that's good. Yeah. Other workers getting a raise is good because then you can fight for a raise too. Yet another <laughs> thing that I roundly blame on Calvinism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really I do mean, think it's to blame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, our last meme is a photo of a tree's roots. Well, two tree's roots, one on the left-hand side, one on the right-hand side. And then in the middle of it is a mushroom with its uh, mycelial network, its rhizome, kind of connecting to the roots. And uh, the text on this says, yo, why are they sharing resources with no profit incentive? (laughs) This is so fucking cool. Capitalist biologists completely stunned. Utterly destroyed. (laughs) Well, it's so funny, too, because this is highlighting a really cool fact, which is like the more we learn about uh, root networks and fungal networks, the more that we realize that every ecosystem is also essential just like a slow moving land party of exchanging information <laughs> which is pretty cool to think about i don't know what it has yeah. to do with labor most of the time but it's neat <laughs> yeah i mean some of the most uh healthy soils have like many different well four major aspects to it but one of them is you know like fungal mycelial networks along mm-hmm. with the root networks of the plants uh, but you know, that's for my next podcast where I start talking about all of the different intricacies of plants in relation to, uh, capitalism, I guess. <laughs> Kropotkin, the biologist vindicated. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. right. 
All right. Well, with that, we're going to wrap for this episode. We uh, would love it if you take the time to head on over to patreon.com slash workstoppage and support us with $5 a month because it is the only way that we receive funding for this show. And also you get access to all of our overtime episodes. We are just starting up our second part of Unions and the Mob, Reputation versus Reality. This one on the International Longshoremen's Association. This one has a slightly different story compared to the Teamsters, but it is still going to be very exciting to go over it. So become a patron to get that as we as it comes out. Uh, jump in the Discord and come hang out with us. Write us a review somewhere. Follow us in all the places. Links are at workstoppagepod.com. They have been updated. You can get Blue Sky, Twitter, etc., Facebook, etc., Mastodon, Twitch, et Rumble, etc. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to BB Bledis, listen to Red Game Table, and as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. The brownies in the break room are stale. I sit at my desk and cut my fingers.